Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with Kevin Most, speaking about compiler plugins. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Hadi. How's it going? So you had a talk at uh, KotlinConf last year, which was actually talking about compiler plugins, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's funny because a few people said to us, like, "Oh, are you? Is this? Like, I don't remember. I don't remember if you actually pinged me beforehand as well, or was it afterwards? Like." Uh, you know, is this going to be, is there a chance of this being accepted because JetBrains has been kind of silent on the compiler plugin aspects of things. And, and we get a lot of, like, we don't, there's no, uh, there's not much, okay, there's not any documentation about it, I guess, still. Uh, so, you know, people kind of think like we've tried to keep this obscure and under wraps, right? Right. It's not really the case. It's just, you know, it's how things go. But uh, your talk was accepted and, and you gave the talk at Kotlin Conf and I think the feedback on it was great and it definitely gauged some interest. And so I thought, you know, let's discuss this a little bit on the podcast and give people some idea of what exactly compiler plugins allow you to do and the issues that you've found when trying to work with them and you know where you feel they could go and what what you see as potential with them uh yeah i also thought it was interesting um actually when my talk was accepted i think my first thought was i didn't actually expect this talk to be accepted because this is kind of a you know jetbrains internal compiler talk at this point it's not really an API that we've been encouraged to use to use in the past. Um, and at the time, I don't think that anyone working publicly with Kotlin was really sure whether this was going to go anywhere, as you said, like as a public facing thing. I think that at KotlinConf 2018, it became pretty clear that, you know, Andre in his keynote said the compiler plugins are kind of the future of metaprogramming on Kotlin, especially in like a multi-platform first world. So um, I thought it was kind of interesting how everything kind of came together at the same time. You know, multi-platform is something that's growing right now in the Kotlin world and compiler plugins are kind of necessary for us to get there, I think. Yeah. So it was really good timing. Yeah. yeah. So what brought you to compiler plugins? Uh, sure. So I think um, what brought me to them is I think um, anyone who's kind of like delved into the like Kotlin compiler and the language and kind of nerded out a little bit over it has always kind of known that they were there. You know, there's been there have been a lot of compiler plugins that you guys have made in the past. Like um, I think my first exposure to it was the Android View synthetic extensions, and you know, there's discussion on whether or not those are like the best way to do Android Find View by ID replacement. But I think that the first use of any like the first time anybody uses that. Um, the Android View library, the synthetic view extensions library, they kind of go, wow, this is just pretty magical, right? You just type like the ID of your views and it's just, you didn't have to recompile to get it to autocomplete in the ID. The ID knows the type of the view. It just, it knows so much, right? And that's like such a magical metaprogramming solution. Uh, and I didn't know for a while how it was working. And the answer was just that it was a compiler plugin. So you know, we kind of knew they were there all the time. And I think it was just very daunting to get in there, dive into that code and go, how, how will I write one of these myself? Um, but, you know, you sort of, you, you think about metaprogramming problems you'd like to solve in your own day to day. And like, sometimes you can't solve them with annotation processing and you, you look at compiler plugins as the next step. That's how I got there personally is like, I had a problem that I would, 
I would like to write a compiler plugin for, and that's what brought me there. So, and that's a very good point in terms of I had a problem that I needed to solve, right? Because it's always so much easier and more uh, motivating to learn something when you have an end goal. And and what was the actual issue that you were trying to solve that you couldn't solve with annotations? Sure. So for me, there's been a plugin that I would have liked to write for a while to make um, JVM builders for data classes. You know, I I think everybody loves data classes in Kotlin. And then when I sometimes when I go to interop with them, if I have a data class with like ten constructor parameters, it doesn't really look that great to construct it in Java. Yeah. Uh, so you can't really solve that with a build. Well, you could solve it with an annotation processor, but it would require, you know, if you've used auto value, you write the interface for the builder yourself. Uh, it's kind of a lot of boilerplate and Kotlin aims to eliminate boilerplate. So I think the ideal would be you just annotate your class and it generates the builder for you, the synthetic members for it and everything like that. And you couldn't do this in any other way than compiler plugin? So with annotation processors, it wouldn't really be possible just because you can't modify code in an annotation processor. You can't modify existing classes, right? You can only generate new classes. So you would have to have your users rely entirely on a generated interface, or you would have to have them write that interface on their own, right? Like we've seen an auto value, that's an approach that allows you to write your own code and the implementation will be generated on the back end for it. So you just write the builder for it. Um, you could also write an annotation processor where users would use the generated code, but it's kind of, not accepted as good practice to have your users rely on generated classes throughout their code base so much. Like the IDE will complain before you built that it, the symbol can't be found. I'm sure anyone who's used Dagger and wrote, you know, Dagger uh, underscore application components or whatever it's called, and then sees the red squiggly line knows the woes of that, right? It's not as nice looking. It's not as nice of a as a of an IDE experience. Yeah, and that, that's where I was trying to get to because I think that uh, if I'm not mistaken, Arrow does something similar with their um, optics classes, right? Uh, yeah, which basically like generates this dot notation where you can access any value, uh, but you need to first kind of um, have this code generated so that you can get it working, right? Right. I think there's a lot of problems that people are solving now that could be solved better if they could write a compiler plugin for it. Yeah. Now, obviously, we ship with a couple of uh, compiler plugins ourselves, right? Uh, the Kotlin team, uh, which are the the one that is mainly used for Spring, which essentially allows you to specify that because Spring, uh, for those that don't know, you know, is quite heavy in terms of uh, requiring uh, dynamic proxy, so that classes need to be open, and instead of having to decorate all your classes with open all the time, because you know in Kotlin uh, classes are closed by default for inheritance, you can use this annotation, right, which allows you to essentially say certain classes with certain annotations are are treated as if they were open. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So one, that's actually one of the, I guess, one of the plugins that I felt was simpler to dive into and read into was um, these plugins like the all open plugin, the no arc plugin, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the, the other one was the one that you mentioned was no arc. So, right. and uh, how did you actually learn about this? Like, what did you do? Just open up the source code for one of these and figure out how it's done? Yeah, that's exactly what I did. I dived into, dove into, um, I went to the JetBrains Kotlin repo. Um, I poked around. 
you know, I did a lot of grepping for things like no arg and all open because there's not really documentation on like where these live, but it's actually pretty simple to find them. They're just in the plugins folder in the root of the repo. And that's where the plugin logic lives. There's a separate folder with all the Gradle and Maven helper plugins as well, but those are um, a little bit simpler. I think most of the core logic lives in that plugins directory and that's where all of the actual code gen happens. So I was just poking around in there. I figured that, you know, based on what the plugins do, the easiest one for me to read and understand what was happening with was the noarg plugin because it's it's fairly simple, right? You're just generating this noarg constructor for this class. That's can you just um, for for the listeners that may not be familiar, what does that do? The noargs one. Sure. So it just generates a no argument constructor for um, a class that's annotated with it with a specific annotation, so that you can use the class from uh, Spring, as you said, right? Yeah, and I think that that one's actually more used for uh, serialization. Some of these ones that require uh, being able to instantiate a class with without, uh, you know, I mean, when uh, you right, generally yeah. you, when you generally create like a data class, you don't want to have uh, mutable properties, and you don't want to have to initialize them. And, and a lot of serializers require this, right, uh, to to be able to basically create a parameterless, uh, sorry, uh, right, have they'll a invoke it, they'll no, invoke yeah. it dynamically, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you can use that. I mean, I, I've been quite heavy user of uh, JSON. Right, and, yeah. Which basically breaks all the rules. It's like, I don't care whether you have a constructor <laughs> this parameter. Yeah, it'll actually construct it without invoking the constructor, yeah. I believe, in certain scenarios. <laughs> yeah, parameterless constructor, not constructorless parameter. Anyway, right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so yeah, I, because I was going to say, that's probably one of the easier ones to look into um, of the of the many, which are basically two, I guess. Uh, I don't think we have many more in terms of plugins, right? Out of the box, I think. Well, out of the box, uh, I mean. There are actually quite a few in there. There's the Android ones, uh, like the all open extension actually um, capped the annotation processors implemented as a compiler plugin, but that's a very complicated one, I think, to read. Yeah. So, and how's the documentation front? Um, which one, for right? Mo for most of them, <laughs> for most of them uh, not very good, which is understandable because these were built internally. I think that if you want more documented and kind of less arcane plugins to look at, the Kotlin serialization one is actually really interesting. There's like, there's actually a readme in there, right? Then, and, and it's using um, new APIs, which we can get to later. I don't wanna like get too much off on a tangent, but it's using these new APIs that you guys are building for the future of public compiler development building. Yeah, and uh, that's uh, mostly, I guess, it's done again by Roman Lerizov, who, yeah. has, I, I don't know how, like, you know, he manages to write code, do demos, write docs, do readmes, do samples, and work at the same time. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't get it. Anyway, uh, yeah, so, and I, that, that's actually what I was gonna get to. At, at some point, we'll we'll touch on the, the new API, but, you know, you started to play with this, when was this, over a year ago, right? I mean, not, I guess not a whole yeah, year. Yeah, it, it was not exactly a year ago, but it was sometime in 2018, I was poking around in the Kotlin repo. Uh, I actually thought initially that I would have to just fork the Kotlin repo and build my plugin as like a child directory to all these other ones, like the Noarg and all open plugins, and just you know maintain that fork and periodically merge back in from master, uh, whatever upstream changes there were from JetBrains. And I was kind of dreading this because even setting up the tool chain for you know, building Kotlin, it's not like it's a bad process now, it's gotten a lot better, but you have to have like five different versions of Java to do the code gen, right? And you have to set up, 
environment variables and things like that. Um, and it's actually nice that you guys publish all the artifacts that are needed to Maven Central. So it's not actually necessary to do that. But I was kind of poking around um, looking for these plugins to see how they're, they were implemented. Um, and like the NoArg and all open plugins are actually quite simple. You know, after you do enough grepping to understand the actual code flow, you kind of just come across, across one, you know, for NoArg, it's like NoArg expression code gen extension. And it's just this one class that kind of just builds bytecode, right? And if you're even a little bit familiar with bytecode, you can kind of dive in and understand what's going on. Like, I feel like before I wrote a compiler plugin, I was not at all comfortable writing bytecode, and it definitely has helped me get there. Yeah, but for people that aren't familiar uh, to how this works, including myself, because I've never done a, a compiler plugin, what what is the general idea behind it? I mean, how does it work? Right, so it actually hooks in at a certain point in the build process, I guess after the code has been compiled. So you have these class files that you can read um, and you can generate more bytecode. You can kind of inject your own bytecode into the process of building them. You guys have different, um, I guess, entry point classes that you can extend and you register those in a component registrar, which is one of the API classes that you guys have. So for example, expression code gen extension, which is the one that, uh, no arg expression code gen extension implements. That one uh, is kind of an entry point into every expression that the Kotlin compiler evaluates. So you can basically inject your own logic at any point in Kotlin's compilation process. There's also like a class gen code gen extension, I believe, um, something like that. I think uh, I think that compiler plugins like part the parcelized one. Use that to generate like the parcelize, uh, the parcelable creator object. So that one will actually be that that entry point is for creating new classes rather than kind of injecting your own logic in at every extent at every expression evaluation point. And how much bytecode do you need to know? <laughs> um, probably more than you want to know at the <laughs> moment, at least. Like to generate a JVM to generate anything workable in JVM land, you kind of need to do a lot of bytecode manipulation, right? Even as I was writing the one that I wrote for uh, Kotlin Conf, which was very simple. Like it was just a, a debug log um, annotation you would put on a method and it would kind of write method traces out to standard out for you uh, based on like, the, it, would, it would print the parameters that you passed to the method and then it would also print how long the method took and what it returned. So even doing that was very complicated because you have to handle things like, well, if the method returns a primitive, right? There's like fun facts, like, you know, a long takes two uh, slots on the stack, whereas uh, an int or even an object reference only takes one, right? Because an object reference is basically just a pointer, which is an integer. So there's all these kind of intricacies that you have to know that maybe you're comfortable with them if you're very comfortable with like C++ or something. But as someone who, you know, cut his teeth on Java, I've this has all been abstracted away from me forever. Yeah. And that raises another question, which is, you know, Kotlin is now multi-platform. So if I'm writing a compiler plugin, do I now need to, you know, from the, if I'm targeting the JVM, you say you got to know bytecode. What about when I'm targeting other platforms? Right. So this is, I think, uh, it was one of the reasons I, I wrote down why you wouldn't want to write a compiler plugin. When I gave my talk last year, it was that you have to write a different extension for JVM, for JS, and for native, right? And that's what you guys are doing with certain extensions that are meant to be for multi-platform use. You guys are actually maintaining three different code gens, which is 
you know, not great for you guys, then also kind of makes it difficult for external developers, which I'm sure is why you guys are kind of reworking how this is yeah. implemented now. Yeah. Now, you also spoke about uh, APIs and some new APIs coming around. Before getting to the new ones, did you find, given that this is internal and it's not documented, over the period of time that you were working with this, were there a lot of breaking changes? So for me, there weren't a lot of breaking changes as I was writing it, luckily. Uh, I'm not sure if it's undergoing a lot of change right now, but um, as I was writing it, I only wrote it targeting JVM. I kind of kept JS and LLVM extension generation for for native out of scope just because there was only so much I could cover in a 45-minute talk. But the JVM stuff didn't change too much, and that's just because a lot of the um, registration and API parts leading up to the code gen are kind of just, it's a little ceremonious. It's not all boilerplate. There's certain things you have to do that are specific to your logic, but for the most part, you're just setting up this pipeline that gets you to the code gen extension part. And for JVM in particular, when you generate bytecode, you guys are using a library under the hood called Object Web ASM, which is pretty standard for bytecode generation. It's pretty stable. It, it has documentation as well. So even if the JetBrains team wasn't documenting the plugin architecture so much. It was pretty easy to go and look at Object Web ASM's documentation. There are even Stack Overflow questions on how to generate bytecode. So it's it's kind of easy. It's not easy, but it's, it's kind of possible to get where you want to get to go. One of the things that you initially talked about, you know, when we first started was, you said the word magic, right? Right. Uh, which is kind of the in the context it was in particular regarding the fine uh, view by ID, uh, the stuff that right. we had for the Android extensions. And a lot of times, you know, people have criticized even annotations in that they provide too much magic. In, in the code base, right? I mean, you know, right. I, I, there, there's been times that I've seen three lines of code, whether it's for spring or whatever, and 12 lines of annotations above it, you know? And you right. know that this is basically, the, the, the code itself doesn't do anything, but now you gotta figure out what each of these annotations do, right? Right. And, and so, you know, the concern here is, now I've got this compiler plugin which is essentially allowing me to completely change the behavior of what the code can do at runtime, right? Or, or at least not even runtime, but like what, what you see isn't necessarily what you get, so to speak. Right. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think that that is a very valid concern. And I think that it's one we even kind of saw a little bit with the built-ins, right? Like I think a reason that some people didn't really like the Android synthetic view extensions that were like quote unquote magic is that you don't really know what they're doing to do find view by ID and cast it to a type. And you don't know how they're caching that object. And, you know, I know that there were problems cross cross uh, project when you had like a multi uh, module uh, Gradle project and it would pull in the wrong ID that was actually the same name as another ID in another part of your project, things like that. So I know that there were certain problems with that. and. It's definitely easier to get yourself into situations like that when you're doing so much metaprogramming, which compiler plugins totally enable you to do. But I think that one thing that really helps is that, you know, unlike the implicit magic that kind of goes on in other languages, like, you know, people don't like Scala implicits, things like that. But I think one 
big advantage of Kotlin compiler plugins is that you can write an IDE component for them. And you guys wrote an IDE component for the Kotlin synthetic Android extensions. And that was great. It actually was probably one of the best parts of that extension because you could just command B on this or control B or whatever your platform of choice is, right? You can just command B, control B onto this uh, symbol that was magically resolved by your ID and it would actually take you to the XML file where that ID was being defined and you could see it very clearly. So I think writing these ID plugins will help a lot, right? Like I think Kotlin is great because the tooling behind it is so great. You know, JetBrains, you guys are a tooling company. So I think that if we all write compiler plugins in the future, it won't be that bad because we'll all be writing IDs, IDE plugins to go along with it. Now, someone of some people would argue, uh, and to an extent I could as well, and say, well, sure, you know, if I want to look at this code inside an IDE, it's great. But what if I print out this code and I don't see the Gradle uh, or the build file and I don't see that it's using some plugin, then how am I going to understand that? Right. That's totally, I think it's a valid concern as well. Um, but, you know, there's certain, you could say that as well about, for example, extension properties, right? They're great because the ID will take you to the right spot. They're not like Scala implicits because there's a tight kind of coupling in the ID when you click on the symbol and it takes you to the place where it's defined and you know that that's always where it'll statically resolve to. But then, you know, you print out the code and hand it to someone and they go, well, this method isn't even on this class. That's basically magic. So I think the tooling is such an important part of the language and it really helps you get to a place where the code can be concise and readable and you're not writing so much boilerplate and ceremony and things like that. Um, so I think they kind of have to go together, right? Like the IDE is what makes Kotlin really great to me. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I mean, I do work for a tooling company. I mean, right. <laughs> our bread and butter is IDE, so I'm not objecting to the idea. And to be honest with you, when people raise this question uh, with me, I say, sure, and that is true. But at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to be frequently printing out your code base on paper and reading on on paper. And sure, yeah. you may be doing code reviews in a browser, but you know that that is also a solvable problem at the end of the day, right? And right. and you could argue the same thing to an extent with the simple concept as a data class. I mean, if you right. take a look at a data class, now everybody knows that the data uh, modifier adds a whole bunch of things to it. But if you didn't know that, you know. Right. Now what? Are you going to stop using data classes because under the covers it's adding some methods? No. At, at the end of the day, I guess it's a, a lot of a lot about the the trade offs, right? The, right. I totally agree. I think that the magic is fine as long as it's not magic that you're going to shoot yourself in the foot with, right? Like yeah. Scala implicits and you know C plus plus operate operator overloading and things like that. I think they're people consider them dangerous because you can shoot yourself in the foot with them. And I think that via good tooling, we can enable ourselves to have this kind of magic in the language and not shoot ourselves in the foot with it. In terms of usages, like, you know, someone that's has a problem that they want to solve, uh, what what do you think would be a good way to solve it with a plugin? Or, or let me rephrase the question. What problems would the plugin solve? I think the plugins would solve a lot of the same problems that annotation processors solve now, but they would solve it in more elegant ways. Like for example, I know comp people complain a lot about Dagger, right? I mean, I love Dagger, but people go, I can't really, I don't really know where this dependency is coming from. I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to set up my components. It's so much boilerplate the first time I write it. And it's, 
it's not really boilerplate because it's all necessary for Dagger, right? Like every line you write in Dagger, for those who don't know, it's a dependency injection library that is reflection free and generates all the code for you at compile time. So you have to write these interfaces and these classes and annotate a lot of classes to signify to the compiler like how it should generate its dependency injection graph. And people say that it's a lot of boilerplate and it's true that it's a decent amount of ceremony, but it's all necessary. And it would be a lot less ceremony if it were a compiler plugin, I think. I think that the interfaces wouldn't have to be written out so explicitly. They could be generated by the compiler plugin. And then you could get all the autocompletes you want and get all of the kind of magic that you want, I think, and still have it be compile time verified and still have it not show up red in the ID because you would ship a synthetic ID extension with it. So I think that would be like a great use of, of a compiler plugin. I think you could make a really elegant DI system. Do you foresee that people generally in companies being ado adopting this technique or, or is it more kind of, we'll just see it in libraries, maybe by JetBrains, by some, you know, other companies or open source projects that are specific to solving some specific issue, whether it's an IOC container or, or what have you? Right. I think right now, at least, I would see it more being the latter. I think that people working on consumer applications, you know, end user applications don't really want to be doing metaprogramming that much. I don't think even, even right now, writing an annotation processor is like order of orders of magnitude easier than writing a compiler plugin. But I don't, I have not seen the companies I've worked at that do consumer facing products writing annotation processors, right? Even if they have a metaprogramming problem, they'll generally write, they'll just write the code replicate it or do something else that's less elegant with you know interfaces or abstract methods or things like that to avoid deduplication so i feel like compiler plugins won't become something that you'll see every company have in their code base but i think that you'll see everyone's code base have a library that has a compiler plugin in it yeah i think probably about same a little bit i mean i was asking because you know at some point we had um, this technology come in the .NET world, uh, which basically allowed you to do somewhat similar things. And, and you know, there was this... Uh, people were predicting that everyone's going to now have their own kind of like, you know, um, additional tooling support and additional uh, analysis of their code base to try and solve... A multitude of problems and that's that was kind of like the message that was going out like this can enable everyone to do this and eventually nobody did right <laughs> only the same few folks were doing it at the end of the day right but, and i think that eventually it might be more cognitive load for every code base that uses a for every code base that has a just some simple consumer facing like quote unquote simple right like that's just doing business logic to have metaprogramming approaches towards that like i think that no matter what you do learning some new metaprogramming library, even if it makes your life better, like Dagger is some amount of cognitive load and you don't want your entire application to be that, at least right now, I think. I would want to know Dagger, know the compiler plugin version of Dagger, for example, or the compiler plugin version of logging or the compiler version, plugin version of like builders and things like that. and know those tools and take them wherever on whatever project I work on, right? Yeah. So what does JetBrains need to do to make your life easier as a your life who slash whoever wants to write a compiler plugin? Right. I think that um, apart it from sounds docs. like the <laughs> apart from docs, docs you said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that 
the direction you guys sounds, it sounds like you're going with the public API is great. I think that first of all, um, having an IR for generating Kotlin and intermediary representation is necessary because I don't think anyone wants to write the same code three times. And I think what would end up happening is people would just not really support targets that they're not interested in. Like everyone on the JVM would just go, I'm just going to write this for, for JVM. Right. But if it's, if it's no little to no effort to generate JS and native or common targets, just basically Kotlin common targets, I think that people would do that. And that really helps drive multi-platform. So I think that having that public API that generates an intermediary representation is really important. I think that um, for me, a big thing would be it has to be able to bundle an IDE component very easily. So for context, like you would have to install a, a an IntelliJ plugin and have everyone on your team install an IntelliJ plugin, a custom one, if you wanted your synthetic IDE resolves to work properly at the moment. And the reason you don't have to for no arg and all open and things like that is because uh, JetBrains actually bundle, bundles them with the stock Kotlin plugin, right? So when you install the Kotlin plugin, you're actually installing the IDE plugins as well for all open and no arg and things like that. Uh, and that has a few disadvantages, right? If you're working on a team of 100 people, you're going to have to chase down 100 people and someone's going to go, well, why are these things read in my IDE? And you're going to go, oh, you have to install the plugin. And it's also not really tied to any upgrade cycle, right? Like you'll upgrade the plugin, you'll upgrade the compiler plugin, but you'll have to go and upgrade the IDE plugin manually or something like that. So I think that having it so that the IDE understands it, maybe from Gradle or from Maven, you know, you add this plugin and the IDE goes and downloads the dependency for the IDE plugin as well is super important because that's how you kind of get this dynamic programming approach to work properly. Yeah, and that's a good point. And that's kind of like the similar situation that we had with uh, the Kotlin serialization, right, to begin with, which it wasn't bundled as part of the Kotlin plugin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, just, um, and whether that, that could dynamically just uh, download what's necessary. Um, yeah. Right. I think also an ideal would be I don't know if this is feasible, but right now, at least, uh, when you write an annotation processor, it's really nice because you write Java source code. Um, and that's something that developers are very familiar with. I had to go and kind of sit, sit there for a day and understand how bytecode works really well to write my, my bytecode generating compiler plugin, right? I had to, what I actually did was I wrote it in Kotlin and then I decompiled it and looked at the bytecode to understand what I wanted to write because I, I don't really know how to write bytecode. It's it's like, you know, a stack-based system. And to do like system out.println, you have to put system.out onto your stack right now and then do all the other logic. And then at the end, you pop the system out off the stack at the end. And that's how you do the print line. So it's yeah, it's, not really it's like a little bit higher level assembly at the end of the day, right? Yeah, exactly. If you're not someone who really wrote a lot of assembly or any assembly in, in college or anything like that, that's going to feel terrible to you. You're going to go, okay, I can't really write this compiler plugin. And it's just, you don't really get IDE support or anything for the for the bytecode you're writing. Like I'm writing strings, right? When I write a bytecode generating compiler plugin. And that's very difficult. I think if you were to, I assume that the intermediate representation will be something like Kotlin source code or it will be actual Kotlin source code. And that would be very easy to write. Like it would be very pleasant. You know, there's even libraries like Kotlin Poet now that like will generate that. I'm sure that someone would make a Kotlin library that would generate Kotlin intermediary representation. So what's on the plans for you in terms of 
this compiler plugin? I mean, are you going to work on it more or was it just more kind of like a proof of concept or for you to learn or do you have any other plans in the works in terms of plugins? Oh yeah, I would love to write more plugins. I think that, um, you know, they're a lot of fun. I like writing, solving metaprogramming problems and I think that they're enabling us to solve like a whole new class of metaprogramming problems. So last year I wrote my debug log plugin for uh, KotlinConf, but it was kind of a proof of concept I would really like to write a uh, JVM builder one this year. I think that it's a lot more involved of a plugin because to do method tracing, you don't really need to ship a synthetic ID component. So I didn't when I wrote that plugin and that was still enough material to fill up an hour. I think that uh, writing a lot more sophisticated of a plugin that actually generates IDE components um, and then you reference those in your code and they actually resolve. That's like a really exciting problem to me. And it's actually one I face a lot, right? Like when I write, when I use data classes from Java, it's not that pleasant. So that's one that I would really like to solve. You know, I'd really like to revisit it this year if that's possible. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the Kotlin team right now, they're not really, uh, they're saying that we shouldn't really be writing compiler plugins just because the API is in flux right now. You don't really want to target this old API and then have it completely replaced by this new API that enables you to do so much more in so much less code. But I think that the Kotlin serialization library is being written against uh, the new API. So if you're okay with your code breaking and not really being ready for production right now and basically targeting like your you know alpha slash beta slash private do not use APIs, the new LLVM or the new IR ones rather, you can write your own compiler plugin right now even external of JetBrains. And that's kind of the situation we were in last year, but with the uh, bytecode generating APIs, right? This year you can do the same thing unofficially with the LLVM, or sorry, the IR generating APIs. Plus, where's the fun in doing something and then it not breaking? I mean, you gotta have to. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're developers, exactly. exactly. And plus, so you got eight months, man. You know, uh, yeah. Kotlin Conf's coming up in December. You should, right. you should totally get on board with this now and start writing something. Yeah, it's definitely a good time to write these plugins. You know, like I said, if anyone wants to look into what the future of uh, plugin development is going to be, I think that the Kotlin serialization library looks like it's coming along really nicely. It's it's active. It's well documented. It's a good one to look at right now. Well, it was great having you on the show. Thanks for taking the time, and uh, yeah, thanks for hope having me to on. catch up with you at some point again. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Hadi. Take care.